Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or Zepbound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big news in the continuing statehouse scandal with First Energy and HB6. It's the first thing we'll be talking about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am here with Chris Warnowski, Laura Johnston, and Jane Cahoon, who will be first up with this big news. So let's get to it. What is Dave Yost trying to do to protect first energy ratepayers from more abuses than are in HB6? Jane Cahoon, we've talked often about decoupling and that that was really what first energy paid for in this thing. A guaranteed amount of money coming in based on their highest electricity year, no matter how much electricity they sell. Chuck Jones, the former CEO, boasted about this on calls with stockholders about how much it protects their bottom line. It, it is a bad thing. Bribery paid for it. So what's happening now? <laughs> well, everything you just said, Chris, is laid out in a motion by Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost, who is seeking to block that decoupling provision from taking effect. He wants the Franklin County judge, who already agreed to block the nuclear bailout subsidies, to expand that injunction since he's already ruled that that Yost has a good case, he wants him to expand that injunction that he's already granted to cover this decoupling, which, as you said, I think it's based on like 2018 when they had a, a banner year and it guarantees First Energy these profits. Apparently, the filing also goes into some detail, you know, calls out Sam Randazzo, the former head of the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio, for, um, and they tie that $4 million first energy payment to an entity associated with him. And it, and it mentions some of the emails that Andrew Tobias wrote about last week, you this know, week. Randazzo, this week, I'm sorry, that Randazzo played a role in, in crafting House Bill 6 or trying to, um, you know, craft certain portions of, of House Bill 6. But anyway, as you said, yeah, this is big. Uh, obviously, the judge hasn't decided whether he's going to do it or not. But, you know, as you said, this is the big money thing for for First Energy that's that's part of House Bill 6. Well, and I want to point out, this is an important point. This is where Bill Seitz is full of buffoon gas because he's the guy that keeps saying that this was a good bill and the media is sleazy for portraying it bad. There are people in the legislature that have fought repealing HB6 because they argue that the nuclear industry needs propping up, even though First Energy refused to give them any evidence that that's true. They they just took their word for it and gave them $1.3 billion. But so, so put that aside. This was this was just a, a gift to First Energy with no logic to it whatsoever. 
This was, hey, we're going to guarantee that this utility gets buku dollars off of the ratepayers just because. And that's what $60 million in first energy money paid for was, was what really will be more than a billion dollars ripped away from the ratepayers. And for Bill Seitz to continue to work a deal to preserve this nonsense, it just makes him a bad legislator. And it also really raises questions about why this legislature has, has refused over and over again to fix this thing that hurts the ratepayers. So credit to Dave Yost. I'm a little bit surprised, Jane, it took so long. I mean, we've been talking about this <laughs> since last July. This, this was the reward. This is what First Energy wanted. Let's spend $60 million guaranteed that we have money pouring in like it's Christmas every day. And yet that nobody has filed the lawsuits on that. Nobody's done anything about that until this morning. Yeah, he said it's time to shut the HB6 piggyback down. Yeah, it's very, it's strong words. He, you know, he clearly gets it. And uh, I can't imagine that a judge won't do this. I mean, this is forged in bribery, forged in corruption. And every legislator that has stood by it really needs to pay for it. Maybe because of what's going on nationally in the country, um, we'll see a turn where, where they just don't automatically get elected because of their jury-rigged districts and there'll be some accountability. And maybe there are unicorns and rainbows. With <laughs> I was just going to say that. You stole my line. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're listening to This Week in the CEO. How deep was the plot financed by First Energy to undermine Cleveland public power and how many people in Cleveland were involved? Chris Ranaski, this news broke right before Christmas. John Kennedy put together a story showing a lot of First Energy money came into Cleveland through a, a, you know, what appeared to be a do-gooder nonprofit that seems to be completely questionable now, which wanted to undermine Cleveland public power. John came back this week with a tremendous investigative piece that really got into what this group was, how it formed. So what did he find? Yeah. So we've, we've talked a lot about consumers against deceptive fees. They're the nonprofit that was behind a Cleveland public anti sort of anti Cleveland public power campaign here in Cleveland that uh, turned out took about $200,000 from a pass-through organization that took a bunch of money from First Energy, uh, in the same way that that Larry Householder and 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 all and company were all sort of accused of doing as well, and and this story is really it's it's complex. It's it it's it's a very it, there's a lot of lines to draw from uh, from First Energy and where where all of this money went, but but what we found is is that. There was a lot of a lot of this really started in Cincinnati in earnest, and and um, one of these pass through organizations was created, and what they did was they established this this organization. There was there there were attorneys from this uh, law firm by the name of Rotzel and Andreas, and they represent First Energy, and the group basically got a lot of ground support from a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Dow, who was a political insider from Cleveland Heights, who helped run several local campaigns. And Dow declined to comment for this story. He released a statement saying that I was the uh, executive director for Citizens Against Deceptive Fees uh, for a very short time. He said he was proud of his work. And he reached out to members of Cleveland City Council to educate them about unfair and deceptive fees that CPP customers 
have paid for years. Um, but it was interesting because this one of these groups was basically founded down in Cincinnati. It didn't make a lot of sense that it was started in Southwest Ohio. And, and, and what is questionable is that the organization also had more money than it got from C, uh, from First Energy. And so now uh, Kevin Kelly is, is considering looking into how it got the rest of its money. Where the well, we don't know that the money didn't come from First Energy. What we right. know is, is in, in in the years for which we can tell where the money came from, it was First Energy. But in the previous years, there's nothing on the record to show the source. First Energy could have been funding this from the beginning. And actually, that's probably the highest likelihood since this really does look like it was a puppet. The group's gone, right? They summarily went away and very quietly. No one's talking about it. Right. So a lot of these groups have kind of just stopped doing anything. And, and in November, I, when, when the investigation really took off, they, they basically all kind of ground to a halt. But, but this story, you know, I mean, it involves, you know, Cincinnati mayor Jay Kincaid. It involves a political fixer who has ties to campaigns of, of people like Frank Jackson. And, 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 and it's just, it's, it's interesting. And it's, it's kind of complex and, and it's, it's, it's hard, it, it's hard to sort of explain it in, in one, one, you know, five minute talk that we have here, but I, I would encourage yeah, well, I do want to make clear. I mean, yeah. there's no way Frank Jackson would undermine Cleveland public power. He's no, been protecting no, no, no. it for 16 years. So, so the guy's tie to him is interesting, but it, but it seems like it's because of his tie to him that he might've been hired for whatever this, this, agency was was trying to do it's very odd that some guy in cincinnati incorporated this thing and you really wonder about what that guy's tie to first energy is i'm surprised kevin kelly he's running for mayor and this is something i think he wants to use as part of his platform has not impaneled the investigative power that he has and forced these people to come in and say where their money came from especially with all the questions raised now yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's, it's a matter of time before we, we start to sort of see some of these dots connected through officially through this investigation. But, you know, we, we've already seen indictments of, of people down in Cincinnati related to this. You know, we've had, but what John's story really sort of outlines is, is just how, like how many people got involved with this for one, but then, you know, how, how these things are sort of set up in a way that just makes it really difficult to track down who's doing what. I mean, it's, it's like, it's like we talked about the, how there are pass through organizations involved in this designed to hide, you know, all this dark money. I feel like getting this many people involved in something like this sort of allows people to, to say like, well, I don't know what was going on over here and I don't know what was going on over here. And, and that was, I wasn't in charge of that part of it. And this is so, so, you know, I mean, they're up, we're up to like maybe 10, 15, 20 people that are now, now, you know, very sort of connected to this work, this investigation. And, and I do want to note, Retzel and Andres is a law firm and more in town and they're public facing and they seek goodwill. They have some explaining to do. If yeah. they were a participant in an effort to undermine Cleveland public power, they should be explaining themselves. And if they weren't, if they have some deniability that's plausible, they ought to be putting that out there, too. I was really surprised to see the involvement of them. Well, to, to quote Mike Polensic, he said this was clandestine and it was dastardly. So, <laughs> so yeah, everybody's they, got some explaining to do. Well, the individuals can duck it, but Retzel and Endress is a public, you know, they're a company that relies on customers. And if customers feel like 
they had a role in this, they should take their business elsewhere. And, and I would like to note, we did give them an opportunity to comment for the story and they have so far declined. So yeah, if- always the smartest, the smartest strategy is to not comment when you're in the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> they not know about crisis, public relations. Anyway, we'll move on. It's this week in the CLE. Do we have an Ohio variant of the coronavirus that is just as dangerous as the much feared United Kingdom variant that is so much more contagious? Laura Johnston, we we knew, we just knew that once they discovered the UK variant, this would probably be already all around the world. This is a little different, though. This isn't the exact UK variant. It's our very own. Yeah, this is unique in that it is um, a different UK, different from the UK variant, but the same. They believe the same kind of mutation happened here in Ohio to create the same kind of variant to the virus that makes it more contagious. However, we don't really know why it's more contagious. There's a lot of questions. Scientists haven't done the kind of lab experiments that are required to know how much more transmissible it is. They're just drawing conclusions from epidemiology epidemiological observations. So this is coming out of the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. So far, I believe they've only seen this one Ohio patient with the variant. But you're right. Once you've seen one, that's probably not the only one. Right. And it's in- like if you find a flea on your dog, you got a lot of fleas. If you find a mouse right? in your house, there's a million mice. This is everywhere. Right. And in Britain, that variant became the predominant form of the coronavirus in just three months, which is scary as we're trying to vaccinate everyone. We'd like to vaccinate them quicker than um, a more contagious variant can come online. So Peter Moeller, who's the co-author of this study um, and as chief scientific officer at Wexner, said at this point, he doesn't think that the therapeutic approaches we have won't work, but they're still studying it. And we need to understand the impact of mutations on the transmissions, the prevalence of the strain in the population, and whether it has a more significant impact on human health. I keep waiting for for the definitive information on what makes these variants more contagious. I've seen lots of suggestions and speculations, but it's, you would think that by now they'd say, yeah, this this has three more spikes on it and it gets it into areas of your nose that the other one couldn't get and it flourishes there or something like that. But we still have yet to see definitive information on why this is more contagious. They say it's still something you breathe in, so it's not getting into your body another way. So why does this one have such a, a rapid spread? I don't know the answer to that. I think they're still studying it, but you're right. I feel like there's this growing anxiety and this the kind of race to vaccinate because of, of things like this. All right. Well, today, Laura, get a get a degree in biology. This <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. It's this week in the CLE. What was Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan's role in the historic second impeachment of President Donald Trump Wednesday? And did a Republican Ohio colleague of Jordan's break with the party to vote against the president? Jane Coon, what Jim Jordan did is no surprise, but actually what Anthony Gonzalez did was. So let's take him in turn. What Jordan has been in the news nonstop for the past week, staunchly defending the president, refusing to admit that there is no evidence of election fraud. What did he do yesterday? Well, he assumed his customary role as the attack dog and and fierce defender of Trump. He accused Democrats of being obsessed with impeaching Trump from day one. And he said this is all about politics and Democrats desire to get Trump. And, uh, you know, despite Jordan being 
probably one of the most divisive members of Congress. He also used the same argument he's been making recently that impeachment does nothing to unite the country and allow us to move past the horror of what happened last week at the Capitol. Um, And he repeated his assertion that Republicans have been consistent in condemning violence during all kinds of protests. um, Let me interrupt you too. And he keeps denying. Now he's saying he never said that that there was a lot of fraud. Yeah. And one of the Democrats, uh, you know, the, the, the guy who pressed him the other day, he called him out on that and said, um, Dude, you know, you were at a steel stop the steel rally in Pennsylvania, you know. So anyway, yet, but he kept saying it. He kept saying, I don't care. I never said that. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And it's this bizarre thing that has happened in the Republican Party over the past couple of years where they just state things that are completely untrue and figure if they say them enough, it becomes a truth. It's Donald right, Trump feeling right. that and, I am the sole purveyor of truth and only what I say is true. Bizarre, because right. his colleagues are confronting him saying, here's proof that you're telling a lie. And he goes, nope, nope, I'm not lying. So keep going. I'm sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> That's okay. And then, of course, he touted all of Trump's policy accomplishments and, and then went into one of his favorite lines, which is about uh, so-called cancel culture. He said it's it's not just about impeachment anymore. It's about canceling, you know, canceling the president and anyone that disagrees with him. And he said if it continues, it won't just be Republicans who get canceled. It it won't be just the president. It's it's going to come for us all. So that was very doom and gloom. And you know, I think somebody noted that uh, hey, the rioters tried to cancel us all out last week. You know. But anyway, so so that was pretty much the the essence of of what Jordan Jordan said. All right, let's talk about the bright spot, the Republican from Ohio who is being thoughtful and not just trotting out dogma. What did Anthony Gonzalez do? And then talk a little bit about who he is. He's fairly new on the yeah. scene. He's a Republican from Rocky River. He I believe just finished his first term, although he's kind of made a name for himself as somebody who works across the aisle. He's like on the Problem Solvers Caucus. And he has some real legislative accomplishments already, which is which is pretty notable for the relatively short time he's been there. So he's I think he's viewed as kind of a moderate. And by the way, he's a former Buckeye football star and Indianapolis Colts football star. So we should note that. But anyway, he it was the only Ohio Republican to vote for impeachment. And uh, he explained it by saying the the president helped organize and incite a mob that attacked the U.S. Congress in a in an attempt to prevent us from completing our solemn duties as prescribed by the Constitution. And he said, in doing so, five people have died, including a Capitol police officer. Many more have been injured and our democracy has been shaken. And he said the vice president and both chambers of Congress had their lives put in grave danger as a result of the president's actions. And um, that during the attack itself, the president abandoned his post while, while many members asked for help, thus further endangering everybody. And he said, these are fundamental threats, not just to people's lives, but to the very foundation of the republic. So it was quite an eloquent uh, statement from him. I had a moment of levity in communicating with you yesterday, Jay. And when he did that, I was surprised. I guess we got a little bit of a heads up, but I was surprised. 
And I sent you a note saying, hey, we're going to get a story up about that. And you said, well, we're waiting to see what Dave Joyce does. And I burst out <laughs> laughing. Because it's like, yeah, Dave Joyce is going to take a bold stand against his party. That has a chance of happening. He put out some goofy statement about, you know, he didn't want to endanger his colleagues anymore by by taking a stand. It's like, aren't you supposed to do the right thing and, and let the ramifications fall? Anyway, interesting. I think um, I wonder if Gonzalez is the future of the Ohio Republican I, Party. Chris yeah, Warnowski. I just want to know if, if you didn't watch it, Jim Jordan's speech was really one of the more unhinged things he's I think I've ever seen him do publicly. I wow. mean it was disappointed. I mean he was I mean he was talking about the Wright brothers and, and 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 I think what was the most disingenuous thing about this entire thing is was when he started talking about cancel culture, which is clearly going to be the like you know how they make Nancy Pelosi the boogeyman for everything? Well cancel culture is going to be the thing that that they're going to be parroting out all the time now. But it's it's difficult for me to take an argument that your First Amendment rights and Twitter uh, through Twitter are being violated when you're on, you know, five different cable news networks and talking to the public. I mean, and that was what their argument was, is that like our First Amendment rights are being violated. It's like you're on television broadcasting to the entire country that is watching you right now. How can you make any claim that you're being canceled or whatever? You're, I mean, it's, you know, people are going to buy into this childish BS, but and and frankly, you know, I mean, Anthony Gonzalez is somebody I wouldn't I wouldn't vote for. I, I disagree with politically in every probably every single way. But but I'm glad he did the right thing. And I'm glad people are standing up for this stuff now. You know, I just I just read that Senate staffers are threatening to to leave their jobs on mass because they were the ones that were huddling under tables and and and, and being frightened. You know, so there's pressure on these people to vote the president out now. So well, I, I just think of how many Republicans still support Trump, how many, how many voted, voted for him. cancel out the election. I, know. I mean, it was a staggering yeah. number of people that did that. The thing that I appreciate about Gonzalez, and I wish we had in all of our politicians, Republican or Democrat is thoughtfulness <laughs> that, that it's not knee jerk. I'm always going to go the same way that, that, that they look at the gray areas and he does try to get stuff done. I mean, the whole reason they're there isn't to get up and spout dogma like Jordan. They're supposed to get stuff done for the American people. And in one term, he did. And he is the brightest of bright spots on the Ohio political landscape. And I, I hope it continues. I mean, it's a, it's good to see. And, and again, it would be nice to see it with the Democrats too. I mean, a lot of those just go with their, their dogma. Okay, let's move on. It's this week in the CLE. What's the deal with a police supervisor who wrongfully arrested a woman and never failed to investigate her allegations that her boyfriend burned her five-year-old son with a cigarette? Could he lose his job? Chris Ranowski, we don't talk a lot about police and crime on this, but this is kind of an alarming failure by a police supervisor in Cleveland after we get beyond the consent decree and at a time when we think the police department's doing a much better job. What happened here? Yeah. So the civilian review, uh, the Cleveland civilian police review board recommended on Tuesday that the uh, city's public safety director suspend Sergeant Michael Keene um, for this arrest that happened uh, back in August where a woman was wrongfully arrested uh, during a de- domestic violence incident that involved her, her, her partner who was previously accused of abusing her. And she basically claimed like the, 
you know, that they got into it and, and that she, you, you know, and the boyfriend t- called police and said that she was beating me up. And, and it was, it was the third time he had complained against her, but there was really not a lot of evidence that she had done anything. The, the suspicion here is that, you know, he called the police on her, you know, just to, you know, because he'd been abusive to her before, probably didn't want to abuse her, but wanted to get it at her a different way. And what happened was, is, is, is King was, you know, guiding the decision-making of officers, uh, other officers, and they ended up arresting the woman on a domestic uh, violence charge. They didn't take into consideration that the man was on probation for felony domestic violence commission, uh, for a conviction in felony domestic violence against this woman six months earlier while she was pregnant. Officers didn't listen to her when she reported that the man had shoved her five-year-old son and burned him with a cigarette. And they didn't report any potential abuse to the Cuyahoga County Children and Family Services. And then he, and then the, the police, he ordered them to leave the woman's seven-month-old son with this, this, with her boyfriend, uh, despite the fact that he had no legal custody rights to the child. Um, and the man was drunk. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. So it just, it, it, it in the, in reading this kind of between the lines a little bit, I mean, it just sounds like, you know, they treated this woman like you, you know, like you would in the fifties when, you know, Oh ma'am, you're being hysterical. And, and, and then just sort of took the man's word for it that, that she was beating him up and, and, and then left these kids with him. And so she was, I mean, she was pleading with them to not leave the kids there. And, and then, you know, eventually all these charges got dropped against her. And, and so it, you know, okay. there was a, a complaint made to the review board and, and they looked at it and they want him suspended for at least 10 days. So we'll, we'll, okay. we'll see it's this week in the CLE. We all know the coronavirus vaccine rollout in Ohio has been bungled a bit. But was there a time when Cuyahoga County was the best at doing this? Laura Johnston, my jaw was on the floor. We knew how to do it once. What happened? Yeah, this is a really incredible story. And I give Cameron Fields a lot of credit for doing the research. But back in 1962, Cuyahoga County had the best record in the United States when it came to vaccinating residents with the Sabine vaccine for polio. And this was the second uh, vaccine for polio. It was more effective than the Salk vaccine that had come out about six years earlier. And you can put three drops on a sugar cube. So it it was easier to administer than a shot. But over six Sundays from May through July of 1962, nearly 1.5 million people were vaccinating three times for the three different kinds of polio. So think about that. It was a bigger county then. There were more people living there. They had about 2,400 doctors and nurses that were working. They had 90 sites and a ton of public-private cooperation for PR and just a a public uh, information campaign. They got everybody to show up, line up, get their vaccine, and move on with their lives. Like It was incredible. What's remarkable is that Mike DeWine started this pandemic saying he's gone back and read about history. He should read a little bit of this history. The thing that strikes me is you can't do this today the same way. But what would they do today if they could? Would it be Splenda cubes? I mean, everybody's had <laughs> sugar. Raw, 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 raw sugar. I, I think that if you gave people the option of, of taking some sugar rather than getting a shot, a lot of people would opt for that. Oh, I think a lot of people would opt for the shot. I think people look at sugar as a poison today. You'd but have to give them something else. There was this group. There were two groups called the Cleveland Academy of Medicine and the Cuyahoga County Medical Foundation that organized this entire thing. And they still exist. They've actually 
emerged since then. And we called them up and we're like, why are you not organizing it now? You did such a great job 50 years ago. And they're like, well, we're more of an advocacy organization now. And it's like, well, I really wish you were in charge. Yeah, get them back in charge. Let's get this show on the road. Fascinating story. It's on cleveland.com. I don't think it's appeared in print yet, but it will. It's this week in the CLE. With all that's been going on in Ohio, we almost missed one of the laws that came through the legislature at the end of last year. Did Governor Mike DeWine sign off on the important, very important issue of regulating motorized scooters? Jane this seems like it's such a small thing. But when we finally do get to go back outside and congregate, these will be back out there. So what uh, what does this new law do? And did Mike DeWine sign it or veto it? He did sign it. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's interesting when you th- remember when this was like such a big issue and it just kind of faded out with the with the pandemic. But this is House Bill 295 and it, there wasn't much opposition to it. it. It's a compromise between scooter rental companies like Bird and local governments. So under this new law, scooters uh, can be used on bicycle paths and lanes though local governments and the Ohio Department of Natural Resources have power to regulate their use. It sets a statewide 20 mile per hour speed limit for the scooters and riders have to yield to pedestrians and use a front light and rear reflector when they, when they ride at night. Uh, they can't be rented by people younger than 16. There's a $150 fine along with that if you violate it. And it requires scooter rental services to maintain liability insurance up to $1 million per occurrence and $2 million total. 20 20 miles an hour is really fast. Is there a helmet requirement? Oh, that's a good question. I don't think there is. I I mean, really, if you're on a scooter going 20 miles an hour and you come to an abrupt halt, you're in trouble. I mean, getting up to 20 miles an hour on a bicycle takes some doing and you have to wear a helmet on a bicycle. It's a, it's, it, it, you know, it, it's, it seems like, what are you thinking about this stuff for now? But it actually is very appropriate because these, the arrival of these things created lots of questions. Cities wanted to embrace them because it's about the future, but it did create some danger. So interesting. Well, that can, we're, I, can I ask a question? I mean, it sounds to me like this doesn't just apply to the companies that this also sets some traffic laws that, for people who own their own electric scooters and stuff like that. Am I, am I correct? I mean, in, in, in my reading of that. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Anybody who rides a scooter could be subject to like, if you, if you go more than 20 miles an hour, right. 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 If you, or you don't yield up. to a pedestrian or okay. whatever. If you go more than 20 miles an hour, you're out of your mind. <laughs> it's, it's weird. Just, I, I've seen people riding these during, I mean, they're working, I mean, they're back up and running downtown. So I, you know, it's, it's not it's not as if people stopped using these during the pandemic, although I don't know why you would want to share handlebars. <laughs> like, yeah, I have a feeling. That we'll see. They'll be back. It'll, we will have a day, hopefully later this year, maybe for July 4th, Laura Johnston, when we can all go back outside. <laughs> this week in the CLE. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. We have a busy news day ahead. We'll be talking about the news tomorrow on This Week in the CLE. Thanks for listening. <laughs>